Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our December 2015 issue. You will hear transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Several recent studies have used community survey data to show that many people using antidepressant medication do not report significant symptoms of depression. This finding led to claims that antidepressant medications are overprescribed, that primary care physicians may often prescribe antidepressants to patients with minimal or mild depression. This claim received significant attention in the popular press. The authors of this article were concerned that community survey data were giving the wrong impression, as people taking antidepressants may not accurately remember symptoms of depression from months or years ago. Large health systems are increasingly using standard measures of depression severity, like the Patient Health Questionnaire 9 or PHQ-9 to guide depression treatment. Because these data are recorded in electronic health records, the authors were able to look back and examine symptoms of depression that patients reported at the time they started treatment. In a study supported through funding from the National Institute of Mental Health, the authors used data from four large health systems to examine severity of depression at the time that outpatients started antidepressant treatment. Baseline PHQ-9 measures were available for about 7,000 patients in 2011, including patients treated by psychiatrists and general medical physicians. They found that only 2.6% reported minimal depression, as indicated by a PHQ-9 score of less than 5. Only 12.5% reported mild depression, as indicated by a PHQ-9 score of 5 to 9. Minimal or mild severity of depression when starting medication was somewhat more common among older patients, patients living in wealthier neighborhoods, and patients treated by psychiatrists. The authors conclude that starting antidepressant medication when depressive symptoms are mild may sometimes be clinically appropriate. They feel these data do not suggest that overtreatment of mild depression, especially by primary care physicians, is a significant concern. Some atypical antipsychotics produce marked improvements in negative and cognitive symptoms in substantial numbers of patients, but efficacy differs among agents and individuals. The authors of this article conducted a Phase three placebo and active controlled study, supported by Forest Laboratories and Gideon Richter, to evaluate the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of caraprazine in adults with acute exacerbation of schizophrenia. This dopamine D3 and D2 receptor partial agonist antipsychotic shows preferential binding to D3 receptors. In the study, patients were randomized to receive six weeks of double-blind treatment with caraprazine in doses of 3 or 6 milligrams per day, aripiprazole in doses of 10 milligrams per day, or placebo. 
aripiprazole was included as an active control for assay sensitivity. Results showed that patients who received 3 or 6 milligrams per day of caraprazine showed significantly greater improvement than those receiving placebo on the clinical global impression severity scale, as well as on the positive and negative syndrome scale, which was the primary outcome measure. Significant differences from placebo on these measures were also observed with aripiprazole. Caraprazine was also associated with significant improvement relative to placebo on measures of negative symptoms, depressed mood, and cognition. Caraprazine was generally well tolerated with mostly mild or moderate treatment emergent adverse events. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the December table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Clinicians typically conduct unstructured interviews using experience and intuition to explore presenting problems. This approach produces variation in diagnoses and terminology used to describe suicidal and non-suicidal self-injury. Consistent assessment has become even more important given recent concerns that pharmacologic interventions might increase the risk of suicidal ideation or behavior. In a study funded in part by Pfizer and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, researchers compared the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, the Suicide Tracking Scale, and the Sheehan Suicidality Tracking Scale on their accuracy in assessing suicidal ideation and behavior in a large sample of psychiatrically hospitalized adults. The authors also examined the agreement of the scales, using the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale as the criterion. The FDA has issued draft guidance indicating that this scale is an acceptable interview and that other interviews should map onto its more fine-grained subcategories. Interrater reliability was examined by having independent judges re-rate a subset of 90 videos. While all three scales were accurate about suicidal ideation and behavior, the Sheehan Suicidality Tracking Scale and Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale showed only moderate agreement about more fine-grained categories. The Suicide Tracking Scale did not assess them at all. Interviews using these scales improve upon unstructured approaches in the consistency of terminology and reliability of detecting suicidal ideation and attempts and, to a lesser extent, more nuanced categories. The authors note that future work should assess the clinical utility of the fine-grained categories. In previous research, baseline obesity predicted better response to L-methylfolate calcium augmentation in patients who were non-responders to selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. The authors of this article assessed whether systemic inflammatory factors might also be key moderators of response. Their work was supported by Nestle's health science, PAMLAB. Patients with major depressive disorder with an inadequate response to SSRI monotherapy were randomly assigned to either L-methylfolate calcium 
or placebo using the sequential parallel comparison design. Blood samples were obtained at baseline, and cytokines, C-reactive protein, adiponectin, insulin, and leptin were assayed. The authors analyzed the effects of baseline biomarker levels, either above or below the median, on the treatment outcome. Higher baseline levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-8, C-reactive protein, and leptin predicted greater L-methylfolate calcium response than placebo. In addition, combinations of obesity status with elevated levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-6, interleukin-8, C-reactive protein, and leptin also predicted response. The authors conclude that specific inflammatory and obesity-related factors were associated with greater symptom improvement with L-methylfolate calcium. This finding suggests that systemic inflammation associated with obesity may be a key factor associated with response to L-methylfolate calcium augmentation of SSRIs for patients with major depressive disorder. Suicide is a major public health concern. The World Health Organization reports that an average of one million people worldwide die each year by suicide. Suicide by overdose is a common method among suicide attempters. Identifying substances used in overdose and trends over time may be beneficial for suicide prevention efforts. In this article, the authors examined trends in a population-based sample of people who were admitted to intensive care units for serious intentional overdoses. Their study was supported by the Canadian government and the University of Manitoba. The study included 1,000 individuals presenting with deliberate self-poisonings to any of the 11 intensive care units in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Results show that a large proportion of admissions, 66%, were due to multiple overdoses. At the population level, multiple overdoses increased slightly over time, whereas use of poisons, over-the-counter medications, non-psychotropic prescription medications, anticonvulsants, and tricyclic antidepressants decreased over time. The authors conclude that it is important for physicians to exercise vigilance while prescribing medication, including being aware of other medications to which their patients have access. Obsessive-compulsive symptoms, or OCS, may be under-recognized in depressed outpatients, particularly repugnant, embarrassing, and stigmatized violent or sexual obsessions that sufferers are especially reluctant to discuss with treaters. In this month's CME offering, the authors present a secondary analysis of 3,995 of the adult patients enrolled in the Sequence Treatment Alternatives to Relieve Depression, or STAR-D, trial database. Their study focused on Level 1 of STAR-D, a 12-week open trial of citalopram at a dose of 20 to 60 milligrams per day to assess rates of depression remission. The study's aim was to determine the frequency of OCS and the effects of OCS on depression outcome. Their research received funding from the Shirag Foundation. 
The researchers found that even though the STAR-D trial excluded primary obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, 53% of patients endorsed one or more of the eight OCS on the Psychiatric Diagnostic Screening Questionnaire. 14% of patients endorsed four or more of the questionnaire's OCD questions and were judged to have had probable OCD. Patients endorsing OCS had significantly lower odds of depression remission on both clinician-rated and self-rated scales after adjustment was made for potential confounding variables. Most common among the symptoms reported were obsessions of inadvertently causing harm, and the number of OCS endorsed was positively related to depression severity. The authors conclude that OCS are common in depressed outpatients. They impact clinical recovery from depression and should be screened for, since sufferers are often reluctant to disclose these symptoms. These findings highlight the need to improve our training of psychiatric and primary care clinicians to recognize and effectively treat depressed patients with OCS. Suicidal behavior is a major public health concern. More than 40,000 deaths are reported each year, and 25 to 50 suicide attempts are made per completed suicide in the United States alone. As such, brief screens for suicide risk that are easily used in clinical practice are an important component of an effective suicide prevention strategy. In order for screening tools to be most useful, it is especially important that they are valid for predicting suicidal behavior. The authors of this study, funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, examine the validity of the Beck Depression Inventory Suicide Item item number nine, as a potential screen for suicide risk. They found that the suicide item predicted suicide up to 20 years after assessment, as well as suicide attempts up to 18 months in psychiatric patients. A cutoff score of one or higher was found to be optimal for predicting long-range risk for suicide. A cutoff score of two or higher was found to be ideal for predicting suicide attempts over the comparatively shorter period of months rather than years. These results indicate that the Beck Depression Inventory Suicide Item is a good candidate as a short screening tool for suicide risk that can be used in ongoing clinical practice. It is recommended that a cutoff score of one or higher be used to trigger comprehensive risk assessment and management. Specifically, clinicians are encouraged to pay particular attention when patients endorse a two or higher on this item, as this may indicate more short-term risk for suicide attempts. The pathophysiology and biomarkers of depression have remained largely elusive. Recent data suggests that oxidative stress contributes to neurodegenerative changes in patients with depression. To shed light on this, researchers conducted a meta-analysis that included studies comparing antioxidant or oxidative stress markers in patients with depression with those in healthy controls before and after antidepressant treatment. 
The authors further compared results after antidepressant treatment to test whether levels would normalize with treatment. Twenty-nine studies with almost 4,000 individuals reported on two oxidative stress markers, two antioxidants, and three antioxidant-enhancing enzymes. Depression was associated with significantly higher levels of the oxidative stress marker malodialdehyde and lower level of antioxidants uric acid and zinc. After antidepressant treatment, these levels approach those in healthy controls. While the antioxidant-enhancing enzyme subproxide dismutase was increased in depressed patients, indicating an attempt to compensate for low antioxidant levels, its change after antidepressant treatment was not significant. The authors conclude that individuals with depression have an alteration in oxidative stress pathways that can be improved with antidepressant treatment. These findings should prompt the search for depression treatments with novel mechanisms, including studies that target abnormal oxidative stress marker status. Every year, about 6,000 people aged 65 and older die by suicide in the United States, and at least two to four times that many people make non-fatal suicide attempts. However, clinicians lack the tools for identifying those at risk for suicide. Those who act on suicidal thoughts follow a decision process, and studies have shown that suicidal individuals are often bad at making decisions in other situations. To learn more about this, the authors of this article conducted a study to explore whether this trait, common in suicidal individuals, could be a result of an extreme degree of decision biases. In this federally funded study, which was also supported by the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention, the authors used a behavioral decision approach to examine the ability of high lethality and low lethality suicide attempters to avoid common decision biases. They focused on middle-aged and elderly adults who were at high risk for suicide. These adults were compared with similarly depressed suicide ideators, as well as non-suicidal depressed participants and psychiatrically healthy participants. Results showed that suicide attempters failed to resist framing, which may reflect their inability to consider a decision from an objective standpoint in a crisis. They also found that low lethality attempters failed to resist sunk costs, which may reflect a tendency to confuse past and future costs of their behavior, lowering their threshold for acting on suicidal thoughts. The authors conclude that, as decision competence can be taught, improving it could be a goal of psychotherapy with suicide attempters. Observational studies have reported a positive association between obesity and major depressive disorder. Over 100 obesity-associated loci have been identified, but genetic variants associated with depression remain elusive. Recently, it was reported that the fat mass and obesity-associated gene FTORS 9939609 was paradoxically inversely associated with the risk of depression. In other words, 
the obesity risk allele at FTORS 9939609 protected against depression. This finding raises the question of whether other obesity-associated genetic variants are also associated with major depressive disorder. The same authors, therefore, assess the effect of 21 obesity-associated loci, other than FTO, on the presence of a depressive episode in the past 12 months. Genetic and clinical data from more than 17,000 subjects in six ethnic groups were included in the study. Of the 21 obesity-associated loci, the T-cell acute lymphocytic leukemia 1 RS298-4618 obesity risk allele was associated with a higher risk of depressive episode. The brain-derived neurotrophic factor gene RS140-1635 demonstrated significant ethnic-dependent association with depressive episodes. These results support the view that the association between obesity and major depressive disorder at the observational level may be explained at least in part by shared genetic factors. Anemia and schizophrenia is an important topic as its presentation might mimic negative symptoms and cognitive impairments frequently observed in schizophrenia. The authors of this article sought to investigate the incidence of anemia in a sample of patients with schizophrenia who were initiated on clozapine over a two-year follow-up period. Their study received private support as well as support from the Singapore government. After collecting hemoglobin values and relevant clinical information from a comprehensive chart review, the authors found that 23 of 94 eligible patients developed anemia. Patients who smoked were at lower risk of developing anemia. Although smoking appears to lower risk, the authors believe this to be due to smoking's upregulation of hemoglobin levels. Smoking has been shown to increase levels of carboxyhemoglobin, which is ineffective in oxygen transport, thereby leading to an underdetection of true anemia. In their conclusion, the authors note that they cannot exclude the possibility that anemia was an epiphenomenon, that its incidence characterized a population with severe mental illness rather than pointed to a link to clozapine. The authors conclude that further studies are warranted in light of their findings. Patients with alcohol dependence suffer from poor health outcomes, including excessive suicide mortality. Research is scarce, however, regarding the determinants of suicide mortality among these patients, especially in Asia. In a study supported by the National Science Council of Taiwan, researchers tracked a large Asian cohort with alcohol dependence to estimate the suicide rate and explore the risk and protective factors for suicide. Their findings revealed that, compared with the general population, those with alcohol dependence faced excessive suicide risk, with a standard mortality ratio as high as 21. Auditory hallucination and attempted suicide were pinpointed as the risk factors associated with suicide. In contrast, protective factors included financial independence and being married. 
Interestingly, those with physical illnesses had a lower risk for suicide. One possible explanation for this lowered risk could be that those with physical illnesses died from the disorders associated with alcoholism, such as cardiovascular or gastrointestinal diseases, instead of from suicide. The authors recommend that clinicians be on high alert for possible suicide when patients present with auditory hallucinations and attempted suicide. Resources for financial management and vocational rehabilitation can be crucial for preventing suicide in the long term. Modafinil augmentation of antipsychotics may be considered in schizophrenia patients to reduce negative symptoms or daytime drowsiness. However, as Dr. Andrade points out in this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, the available data suggests no role for modafinil or armodafinil in reducing negative symptoms. Read this column to find out why use of these medications could in fact increase the risk of schizophrenia relapse. The full text of this column is freely available online. Please visit the December Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight four educational activities. Therapeutic effects of antidepressants may vary greatly from patient to patient, with some patients failing to respond after several treatment trials. Take part in this case and comment CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Otsuka, to select the best treatment steps for Randall, a 62-year-old surgeon who is experiencing a treatment-resistant depressive episode. Physicians who aren't sleep specialists often feel they lack knowledge about sleep disorders. Explore our second CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals, to familiarize yourself with disorders associated with excessive daytime sleepiness, such as shift work disorder, narcolepsy, and obstructive sleep apnea, and the assessment methods used to diagnose these disorders. Most patients with bipolar disorder will require maintenance therapy to reduce their risk of recurrent mood episodes. View this third CME activity, supported by educational grants from Synovian and Supernus, to find out about tools to track depressive and manic symptoms throughout treatment and discover which maintenance strategies are the most effective for reducing the risk of manic or depressive episodes. In our fourth CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Takeda, U.S. Regent, and Lundbeck, listen to this podcast as experts discuss the case of Mr. K, a healthy 28-year-old man who has never needed medical care previously. He has recently lost his job and developed a major depressive episode that has complicated features. The experts review his objective screening and monitoring instrument results, as well as possible steps to take that will help alleviate Mr. K's problematic symptoms. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the December issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.